uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. Whether you're speaking one-on-one -on -one or a large group, you could make a big difference, positive, negative, for others and for yourself, your reputation. But speaking, especially to a group, is among the scarier things for many people. And I'm going to try to make it easier for you today. Um, you know, it's easy to give a list of tips, but I, I'm going to try an experiment with you that I think may be more helpful to you. Which is, I'm going to walk through my developing what would be a, a toast at a friend's wedding, and then a, the preparation and delivery of a brief presentation at work. An update, I'm going to use just an example of a sales meeting, in which I'm a sales guy giving an update. Uh, and I'm going to be doing it very ad lib, which is what I'm going to urge you to do, because scripting leaches the chemistry, which is the sine qua non, the essential part of any verbal presentation. If it's simply something that doesn't need chemistry, it could be done in an email or article or whatever. So I'm going to I'm not saying you can, look, I do this for a living, so I'm not expecting you to be polished like I am, but I think it's better for me to try to have you aspire to ad-libbing with just a few notes than uh, than scripting. And you'll also need more preparation than I'm going to. I'm, You know, again, you have no basis to trust me or not, but I'm going to be, um, I've deliberately done almost no preparation for this at all, and I'm going to try to think aloud, and, and I think... And I acknowledge that you you will need more than I do, but I think the notion that people tend to over-prepare, which makes them stiff, more error-prone, and that perfection ends up, whatever additional benefit comes from the perfection is outweighed by the, the lack of chemistry. So for what it's worth, if I were going to be giving a toast to a good friend's wedding, I would start just by preparing in advance a little bit of a structure in a couple of words. I would have, the, I'd probably write down the word you, meaning the groom, the bride, some one line funny, and then a serious ending. And I probably would, my way of rehearsing, I would not write a script, but I would start by maybe talking into a, you know, a voice recorder or something like YouTube. Um, a little description about me, but very brief. I, you know, nobody wants long speeches, so I'm thinking about one minute, two minutes total. Maybe closer to one. So, as I said, the first step would be about me, and I simply say, "I know Joe from from the bar when we were at college. We used to be drinking buddies, and I love him. He's kind, he's hardworking, but also knows how to have a good time." I obviously don't know Mary as well, but I have met her, and apart from her external beauty, what I really like best is she seems to really love him. And in this world, which can often be very hard, somebody who really loves you, maybe is going to forgive a few more of your mistakes than the cold, cruel world would, and maybe put look at you with rose-colored glasses. That's a, that's a great gift, and as a harbinger of a, a good long marriage. I hope so. <laughs> I think that's my one little, little one-liner. And then I'd probably have a serious ending, like I would look this up, for example. I'm very fond of the the Irish 
invocation that people use at a toast. I'll, this I would memorize. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, if it's a religious one, I would say, may God hold you in the palm of his hand, which is the original version, or if the group, or especially the couple, is not religious, I would say, and until we meet again, may good luck be with you. And that would be it. And in one minute, I would have said something that I thought was good, and because it was not scripted, except for that last, last bit, I think it's going to be seen as much more sincere. And if I said um or ah, or you said um or ah, if anything, that actually is going to increase the credibility rather than you having written a memorized script. I always kind of feel sad when I see at, you know, weddings and similar events, people reading or anniversary celebrations, people reading what they had written. There's something about the imperfection in humanity that comes from a not scripted talk. And I would encourage you to consider doing something like that. Okay. Now, um, I want to talk about the, as I promised you, um, this would be like a two-minute presentation. Let's say I'm, it's a sales meeting, and I'm a salesperson. I know something about roses, and it's something that most people don't know a lot about, so I thought it'd be fun to share with you. If I'm a salesperson, I'm in a sales meeting of wholesale roses. Um, the first thing I would do is, here I'm going to put myself in my audience's shoes, the other salespeople, the sales managers, and this is really critical. What do they really want to know? What do they really need to know? And especially where might, this is an important point, where might you use their input? When you are you know, making a presentation at a sales meeting, too often, even in, when I see them happening at the Senate or the Congress in the House of Representatives, it's, it's like a dog and pony show. They're there to impress. And I ultimately think, and it's easier for me to say in the comfort of this office being self-employed, but I think when you have a chance to give even an update in, in a meeting, you'd be wise to sure briefly give the update, but that could have been given in writing also. Think about what you could get. What The, the benefit of a meeting is that you can get real-time feedback, interaction from the people right then and there. So as I'm preparing for my little two-minute sales update, I'm also saying, what in the hell might I want my peers' input on? And I would, you know, if I was, if I had a sense I was allotted two or three minutes, whatever, I would try to keep my talk to just a minute so there was room for a question or two. Okay, so now I'm going to just pretend, keeping that in mind, what I would say and ask if I was a sales guy selling wholesale roses. I would try, and again, I'm going to be, concision is very important. People tend to be long-winded. I would try to be really concise. So I would say, well, here's an update on how the sales are going. Uh, what's really selling are miniature roses that are healthy. And that actually makes a lot of sense because more and more people are not living in big houses with backyards uh, and they're growing minis in their, in their, on their patio or in their, in pots. And healthy. These days we are, almost everybody's an environmentalist. Nobody wants to spray. And even if they, they're not environmentalists, it's not fun to have to you know, spray stuff. So our minis that are healthy are the ones that are selling well. What's not selling well, notice I'm being really candid, which is very important, 
are large roses. They may have gorgeous flowers, but they, the breeders, in attempting to create these gorgeous flowers, have had to sacrifice some disease resistance, and so they tend to need spraying. And so I'm finding as a sales guy, I'm feeling a little sheepish, even trying to sell. I know you've got a lot in your inventory of those big roses, but I'm finding myself ethically, and even from a sales point of view, trying to sell, I'm finding myself wanting to not flog those big roses, but reallocate my effort to focus just on those healthy miniatures. So that's my update. And fellow salespeople and my dear sales manager, what advice do you have? How do I deal with this? And now we get their input, say, no, you got to sell this, or no, you don't, or, you know, here's what we can do, and just give me, you know, whatever. They'll say, Go, give it two more months, or, you know, really, the there is one of our two of our bigger roses are really quite healthy, whatever. But now I'm going to get the input of them all within the space of a minute or two. And that's a much more exciting and valuable kind of presentation in, you know, just a minute or two. There is this tendency to want to go on at length. And of course, because this is a podcast, I can't make it two minutes. I do lots of very short YouTube videos. But this, this format of it being a podcast is going to be 20, 25 minutes. So believe me, I'm aware that you may not want to listen to the whole thing, but I'm going to do the best I can to make it worthwhile. But generally, brief is better. Now I want to, um, when I come back from the break, I'm going to share with you some thoughts about how to deliver. You know, I did it all at, at Lib or whatever, but some thoughts that may be helpful to you. Maybe you're not a professional, you know, uh, speaker as, as a living. You might want to do that. Are a couple of tips to keep in mind that are not rocket science, but are maybe not so obvious that may be helpful to you. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, this is really quite advanced stuff, which is when you're trying to persuade people, I have six tactics I've identified that will help you to persuade people. So we're going to talk about that when I come back. I'll be just about 10 or 15 seconds. Stay with me. You're listening to How to Do Life with career and personal coach, Dr. Marty Nemco. If you'd like to work with him, email him a description of your situation, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Marty is pleased if you choose to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not listening to this on Simplecast, just go to how-to-life.simplecast and click on listen and subscribe. Okay, thank you for staying with me. We're talking about public speaking, whether it be a group of two or three people at, at work or play or, you know, a, a large group. So here are some tips about the art of delivering it well without scripting. As again, I've stressed, scripting is usually ensures that you are either not seen as credible or are too perfect and there's no chemistry. I really encourage you just to do Spend a little time putting yourself in the shoes of your listeners. What do they want to know? What do they need to know? And what input would you like to get from them if it's a, something where there is opportunity for interactivity, even if it's just a question or two or a comment that they could make? So, but now in terms of delivery, whether it is a small meeting or a big one, come early. That gives you a chance to informally talk with people, both to get their sense of what they're hoping to get out of the meeting, to bond with them, whatever. Come early. It's not going to kill you to be there five minutes, ten minutes early, depending upon the situation. When I give a keynote address, I'm there 45 minutes early. If I was just giving a talk at a, at a you know concurrent session, I would probably just come five minutes early and ten minutes early. And after I set up, just 
chatting with people informally, asking them, what are you hoping to get out of the talk? Uh, what could I, you know, what might I be able to answer for you? Tell me about you. So I'm both bonding and I will often, because I'm not scripted, I'm able to adjust what I'm going to say based on, sometimes based on what these people say. When I'm talking, I use, I love this technique. And again, it's not for beginners, but it works very well if you can pull it off. And again, because you're not memorizing, you're not devoting all your mental energy toward remembering what the hell you're going to say. I make a point of establishing eye contact, but in a very special way. I want to establish eye contact with as many people as I can. So when I start talking, I usually start by talking for one or two seconds to the person to my far left, maybe in the front row or the third row or whatever. Usually that's not the front row because I want the people behind them to think that I am talking to them individually. Everybody wants to feel like they're talked to personally, even if it's a thousand people in the audience. I'll start with the person on my left, far left and I'll talk to them for a minute, a second or three. Then I'll turn deliberately to the person to their right and talk to them for a second or three. And I'll keep going until I reach the far end. And then I'll simply go back the other way so that so many people end up feeling like I've talked to them for at least a little while. Another important technique that isn't quite as hard um, is to vary your pace. You, well, first of all, you want to keep it generally slow. People don't listen very carefully when they're listening to a speech normally or even a, you know, a, a presentation in a meeting. How often have we, or you and I kind of spaced out during uh, somebody's dog and pony show or whatever? So normally you want to slow down to give people a chance to catch up. And you know, even if they're not listening with both ears constantly, you especially want to vary your volume. When you want to say something important, you usually want to slow down and maybe increase the volume. Like you might even explicitly say, okay, this is really important. This is the one thing I want you to remember and then say it more slowly and with emphasis. And then you can get back because if you talk loud all the time, it's going to just be a turnoff. But when you're saying something really important, slow down and increase the volume. Humor. I don't believe in canned jokes. Um, they rarely come off well. Even professional comedians don't do a great job with it. If it comes, you know, normally it's a good idea to keep in mind that you don't have to be deadly serious. If something happens to be funny that comes up in context, it'll feel natural. Say it, but not don't force it. Don't come with a prepared joke. Okay. I promised you before the break that I was also now going to talk about six tactics for being persuasive. It's very important, of course, if you're trying to persuade people to change their behavior or their attitude, that you know know these some techniques. Um, and, and that's true whether you're speaking to one person, professionally or personally, or you're speaking to a group. So this part of this, this podcast was actually an article um, in Psychology Today. I'm going to use psychology examples. First tactic for persuasion, rhetoric for influencing people is to appeal to their core values. Now, the values could be something broad that like, you know, merit or meaning broadly that many people value this could be like they, most people value merit, they value effort, they, they value beauty. Or the values you want to appeal to may be specific to your audience. Like if, we're, if I'm talking to a psychologist, a value might be um, uh, that improvement is, is possible. 
you know, that we're not just consigned to our genetics or our early childhood, but people can make improvement. Other examples outside of the psychology domain, in some groups, the, the word community is everything. They value community. In others, the word, you know, the concept of freedom is more important than community. In some groups you're talking to, family is everything, or family is first at least. In other groups, um, I think about medical researchers, very often um, work comes first. Appealing to their values can be, make you much more influential. I mean, think about it. You know, I, I think about politicians. When there's liberals, when they give a talk, they're generally giving talks to groups that uh, are, you know, they're faithful, you know, and conservatives as well, to theirs. They, you're rarely going to see, for example, a, a, a liberal go into, uh, into Wyoming to give a talk. You're rarely going to see a conservative go into New York City or San Francisco. So that's the first of these techniques, which is, you know, of, for rhetorical influence to, so that you can really be persuasive, is to appeal to their core values. The next one I want to share is something called confirmation bias. It is easier to persuade people to adopt your idea if you point out that it's consistent with what they're already doing. So to take that psychologist example, if you're, say, proposing a new technique, you might first want to show how it's similar to what they're already doing. Not only does that use confirmation bias so they feel better, oh yeah, this is kind of what I'm doing anyway, but it implies that the change that you're asking them to make isn't going to be that difficult. It builds on what they're already doing. The third of the rhetorical techniques of persuasion tactics that I want to share with you is to invoke a respected bandwagon. You're going to invoke, for example, using our psychology example, uh, a poll of leading psychologists who's, who agreed that blah, whatever it is that you want them, your audience to believe. Or if you don't have a, you know, something like a poll or a large group of other of experts, even one expert's endorsement can be valuable. So that's a, a, a standard, useful uh, persuasion technique to invoke a respected person or, or group. The, the next one, the fourth one out of the six, uh, that's a good persuasive technique is what I call rhetorical jujitsu. Jujitsu or judo is when you're, you're, you're kind of, you're pushing and they're pulling back. So it's like you want to use your, the position that the people in your audience are taking to support your contrary opinion. For example, uh, there's a subset of psychologists called psychoanalysts. They're the ones who are Freudians and Neo-Freudians, and they stress the importance of looking at the cause of somebody's unhappiness, not just come up with behavioral strategies, here's how to move forward. But if you were this presenter and you were trying to change their mind, you might say something like, you're right, it's often important to understand causation. And to that end, we've generally found that it's more helpful to look at contemporaneous, erroneous thinking than childhood issues. So we're finding some common ground. You're using their idea that, you know, it's better to look back and explore what happened in the past, which is not really core to what you, as a, say, cognitive behavioral therapist believes you want to move forward, but you're using their own idea to support yours. The fifth of the uh, persuasion techniques I want to share is to sandwich the controversial. Often it's wise to make your most controversial point what I call penultimately. That's after you've made points that are easier to agree with, but before your final point, which would be one that they're also likely to agree with, you're going to sandwich your controversial point in the middle. 
So to take our psychology example, a controversial point might be that you believe that one session therapy is often ethical as well as cost effective. But a lot of people, if your listeners are going to uh, disagree with that. So normally it's best to sandwich it usually right before the end, your powerful final ending point that people agree with. And speaking of ending, the sixth rhetorical uh, technique is if possible to end with an emotional story, even if you're giving a short talk that you know is going to inspire your listeners, your hope will. Maybe it's in this psychology example, maybe it's a, a success that you had with a challenging client. Now these rhetorical tactics can be very powerful and like all power, of course, they can be used for good or ill. We could do worse than to follow Google's old slogan, don't be evil. In any event, I hope uh, this helps you make your uh, next little talk, whether it's to one person or a thousand, uh, a little better without the, the strain and stress of writing out a script. Um, you know, just it's critically to, you know, put yourself in the shoes of your listener. Give them what they what they really want or need to hear. And those details that may seem important to you or tangents may not be to them. Um, vary your, you know, vary your, your volume. Uh, try to establish eye contact with a lot of people at one second or two, not a quarter of a second, it's one second or two seconds at a time. Uh, use some of these tactics for persuasion, you know, whether it be uh, to appeal to their core values, or one of them at least. Uh, recognize the importance of confirmation bias. The people are like to con have confirmed what they already believe, uh, invoking a respected bandwagon or an individual, use that rhetorical jujitsu, use their own belief system to make your point, sandwich the contra your controversial idea between ideas that they find useful, that they would agree with, and try to end on an inspiring note. In any, and don't be evil. <laughs> <laughs> In any event, I do thank you for watching. I'm Marty Nemco. I always look forward to your comments. If you're uh, listening to this as a podcast on iTunes or Spotify, of course, as well, I welcome your uh, your kind words and accept your criticism if needed. And I especially like it if you share on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I am flattered if you choose either to subscribe to my YouTube channel or my, my podcast. Uh, in any event, I do thank you for watching or listening. I am Marty Nemco. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemco, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.